0: Hey everybody! Welcome back to another all new X's for podcast, the show where we take a look at modern Marvels, chrono some classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N, being the gay rage that created the Star brand.
1: And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray X, trying to figure out where you get oil to fix a hell charger in space.
2: <laughs> hey everybody! It's Nathan. You can find me online at Desert AOA on Twitter, where I will be trying to figure out how did Thor become a brood and like, why did we not see it? And I hope you survive this experience unlike Mama Starbrand.
0: Oh, I know. That's like, uh, it's such an interesting thing to put the Starbrand in this situation for me. I don't know. I probably have minimal experience with the Starbrand outside of Avengers proper, but that of course means we're here to talk about Avengers Volume 6, Starbrand Reborn, written by Jason Aaron, with an incredible crew of artists. Our- Artists. We have Dale Kwan and Andrea Sorrentino, along with Joe Weems and Cam Smith and Craig Young, all contributing line work to the 26th issue, which kind of reintroduces Starbrand in a big way. Then, throughout issues 27 through 30, we have the incredible likes of Ed McGuinness, Paco Medina, and Francesco Mana, as well as Mark Morales and Jason Keith with Eric Arseniega and J. David Ramos on colors. We have VC's Corey Pettit bringing in letters and a host of covers, but what I want to know right now is guys do you star brand which brand do you star do you star the brand i'm just what the fuck are we supposed to do with
2: this thing i do not generally star brand when i first read uh, the first issue i was like wait is this narc like am i reading a dc comic like wait what why is there a magical thing coming and falling on a caveman it's snark. but no it wasn't it was star brand
1: yeah i don't star brand i have attempted at times and nico and you and i have discussed you know looking after Spider Girl at maybe something like New Universal. And I have been very reticent in large part because Starbrand is one of the things from the New Universe that I have really tried to connect with and just could not do so. But when Starbrand started coming up in Avengers, leading us up to Hickman's Run, I really did try and like sink back in, you know, go back and read some of the other attempts at bringing the New Universe into line with mainstream Marvel. And I just. Couldn't get there. Couldn't really get excited about Star Brand coming into mainstream Marvel stuff. And that was probably the one thing that I was most dubious about when this run started and we got a look at the Million BC Avengers. But I will say the fact that the Star Brand weirdly is a Hulk was enough for me to be like, okay, I will stick in and see where this goes. And right from this first issue, I was pleasantly surprised. Some real heavy retconning happening here. Here, but not retconning that I am disappointed with.
0: Gay star brand Hulk.
1: Yeah. What an elevator pitch.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine being Jason Aaron and being at the table with like Joey Q and Tom brevoort And they're all sitting around. And I don't know why it's always mad men to me, <laughs> right? But it's always a little bit like a nerdier, gayer madman. And Jason Aaron comes in looking all sorts of fucking southern bastards. And he's just like, listen, here's what I'm going to do. The star brand is the Hulk. And they're like, okay. And then he's like, and he's gay. And everybody's like, uh, and he's like, and he's in the past. And everybody Everybody's like, ah, and everyone's like, and he's the little one. <laughs> <laughs> I think this story is a knockout. How did you guys feel about Avengers 26?
2: I did love it. Like, it was the first time I kind of was in, interested at all in the star Brand because, like, New Universe just never appealed to me. And then I'm like, ooh, they're gay cavemen. So, like, cool. Like, I can easily get past the, like, caveman gets hit by Artifact and, like, becomes something different, and it's not narc. Okay, like, I kind of like this. I like their little moments in the garden, like the Garden of Eden, basically. And I, I did like seeing the Deviants come in and try to just fuck shit up. Yeah,
1: this made me smile right from the get-go. I mean, you know, we're already off the rails with the idea of humans in 1 million BC, let alone that all of these other creatures exist that we know of from the mainstream Marvel Universe. There was an Avengers team that the Phoenix was around, but it's weirdly, like, starting to grow on me, and the fact that they double and triple down on it throughout the Marvel Universe is, makes it almost more charming to me, you know, Marauders is now suggesting that Mutants actually came first, way before 1 million BC, and so, you know, just that they're taking this concept and running with it is really fun to me, that it's tying into this idea that a dying celestial that came to Earth seeded Earth with everything that it would need for all the heroes that we know to be created today. That is a massive upscaling of this whole concept that I, again, I'm charmed by the fact that they are really sinking into this and they're not trying to be like, oh, you know, like, let's look at evolution as we know it and none of this should be possible. Blah, blah, blah. They've got their own story and I really, really enjoy it. And so to go from that really broad lens into this hyper focused story between two cavemen who are in love. It, it's a very sweet story. It's I love these Million BC Avengers origin stories. I love how they're seeded throughout the arcs of what we've got now. I wish they were a little bit more structured. They're a little bit random and I would love to do one per arc, but that's okay. They're doing it more or less regularly and I really enjoy it. I think maybe my one complaint, which doesn't really come up until later, is that the gay caveman Hulk Star brand is maybe the most exciting one. And to lead with that and make clear that like, that's not going to be the one that we get is a little bit of a disappointment, but this particular issue issue 26 is a really solid lead off to this art.
0: And there's three really notable things that I'm so excited about in this story. Number one, now that there's been a star brand T-Rex, I feel like the, the doors are just blown off for representation here. We can go some really really exciting places with these stories because if there is something that jason aaron's run has been really into it's sort of representing this non-human element of what's going on in the marvel universe and when you set that against the construct of what's going on in judgment day i can't help but think about how many gorilla people and bear people and not quite human people and transformed by cosmic abilities people are running around Around the pages of a book that now suddenly mentions that the deviants are in some way connected with the 1 million BC Avengers. I can't help but think about the bigger picture of evolution that this is helping paint for an event that is one of the most excited I've ever been for a Marvel event.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the willingness to go in strange directions and treat it like it's something that we should all just kind of be on the ride for. Because I do feel like that is where comic books get really fun with a great writer and a lot of times the I mean fantastic writing has been done taking the safe route and giving us sort of tried and true stories with characters that we're familiar with versions of them that we're familiar with and not rocking the boat a lot of times that's great but this is a lot of big swings and I gotta say on balance more hits than misses and the misses are still really enjoyable they're still forgivable you don't have that like I I respect a big swing but you still totally failed it's like you take some big swings and they don't hit the way that other things do but I'm always impressed with the fact that that's where you went with it the worst quality of writing is still good enough to make a great story even if the idea itself isn't going to be one of those things I think that people you know glom onto forever and it becomes like Hall of Fame Avengers canon
2: this issue it was a mile a minute this whole Starbrand arc is like probably too much of a mile a minute I think it goes way too hard and doesn't give some of the pieces a chance to breathe. Greed completely. I know, like, when we get into the other part of Starbrand arc, like, from the first few pages, and then we jump into, like, Thor's abroad and Captain Marvel has her binary form. Captain Corsair, it just, it seemed like too much was being thrown at us okay cool here's some Harold, the war widow okay i would have liked to see some of this stuff fleshed out instead of just everything thrown at us so quick
0: because my shock was that this star brand story wasn't four pages and the fact i don't know it's weird because like i'm pretty sad about bury your gaze and i did think that burke was really beautiful and you know kazar is such a gay bear that that he's not a gay bear is such a disappointment like i think Kazar and Shanna just being openly pants, like, omnisexual, really has to be next, and, like, gender fluid, and like, you know, they are of the Animalia, they are representative of the Earth, like, so it's kind of a weird thing that we don't really see that connection there, so having Barak be, like, this, I don't want to say cave person, even though he, like, all I can keep thinking is uh, Teenager in Love by Neon Trees, but I'm replacing it with Gay Caveman, <laughs> so he's a gay a caveman, he's in love, I can't stop, and Lil' Vin is so sweet, I just find myself, I almost want like this to be an independent book that like like i just want jason aaron to get to do 12 epic issues of avengers 1 million bc because they are the thing i will miss the most now that they've announced that this run is going to end sometime in early 2023
1: i will really miss the avengers million bc they've really grown on me and these origin stories have all been fantastic like i would love to see them collected in some kind of like omnibus on their own just the one one shot origin stories of each character. They really do a lot with just one issue. And yeah, I mean, my biggest takeaway from all this is I did not love the barrier gaze trope, but I was kind of prepared from it. As soon as we saw them on page together, the whole thing sort of spread before my eyes. Like you knew that we weren't. However, we were getting this whole he was alone when we first saw him. So we we knew these guys weren't staying together. But I really would have loved to have seen them together with then as the star brand and just seen some adventures. Between the two of them, and I could have done with like multiple issues of just these two characters existing in this like weird paradise slash uh, primordial time in which everything we recognize is still there. It's just covered in a lot more greenery.
2: And the one thing I do like about the one billion BC adventures is that they all are getting pretty distinct personalities from their counterparts in Marvel time, except for Lady Phoenix. I think that like she really hasn't had a chance to shine and be any. Besides like aging gray clone. <laughs>
0: she's not even born yet and she's got clones i love
2: right her. <laughs> she just seems like it it's kind of like you know like phoenix like came back from the future and was like "Ooh, you look like gene gray like i want to make you my host give us a billion years you know gene will be around and it will be all be like ha you've always had a thing for redheads
0: speaking of things that people always have a thing for i cannot help but notice that as soon as we get past some of these gorgeous pages of the avengers 1 million bc uh, rendered in stunning art that incredible fire page uh If you have the trade uh, in Digital Edition, that gorgeous Starbrand 27 variant that reminds me a lot of the Immortal Iron Fist 19 variant that was just the Dragon of Shaolau on the white background to kick off the Dwayne Swarzynski run with Travel Foreman. So it's just that really simple iconographic visual that I think just really captures a moment. And when I think about visuals like that, I, of course, go to the Phoenix. And when I think Phoenix, I think, frankly, Jason. Aaron, who is responsible for a vast majority of the Shi'ar Phoenix mythos of the last few years. How do you guys feel? I mean, you know, beyond the fact that there is something strange about the, you know, the necessitation of inserting a phallic notion of Quentin Quire into the very yonic idea of the Phoenix. You know, outside of that, which I'm also here for and I want to discuss and please bring your, bring your, your ammo. Let's do it. I would love to get your guys specific opinions on the very imperial form Jason Aaron pushed the Shi'ar into.
2: I think it really goes a lot with how we've really been seeing them go for the last few years. It's a big imperialistic warlike race. When they were first introduced, we were kind of like, ooh, they seem like cool bird aliens. Look at Lil hair. Is it feathers? Or is it, like, hair? But, like, you know, the more time has gone on, the more we've seen everything from, you know, Deathbird being such a, like, warlike badass. So about, you know, Manifest Destiny and you know just expanding their control of everything they see because it really feels like you know like they believe that the gods sort of put them on in the universe to control everything so like it's very cool to see it's been pretty much going on for a while and I I do like how Aaron ramped it up and took it to that degree. You know
1: the Shi'ar follow the rest of the Marvel Universe insofar as everything gets bigger more powerful more expansive and where once they appeared like a very capable empire you know you might think of the british empire at its height we then had to sort of go beyond that idea into an empire the likes of which we could never imagine and i think that is perfectly encapsulated in the prison galaxy that they have with like this absurd number of artificial stars and planets and And it's a cool thing, like, but it just has gone so far beyond the idea of like, ah, yes, the space empire that has good knowledge of everything that's going on and that like has good warp technology to like, these people have their fingers in every single thing that happens. They're expansive beyond belief. You can find the Shi'ar everywhere. Like any sun touches, they have their galaxies to themselves to just house prisoners. Um, And it's a little bit of power creep, but that's like, it's, I mean, it's kind of what I was saying earlier. Aaron kind of lives in embracing power creep to the point of making it something that you just kind of want to roll with rather than fix. And sometimes I think that's the right instinct. Every writer can't do it, but he has written himself through many years to become a writer that gets stories that are big enough and pace setting enough that he can write and control the power creep when he gets things and make it fun and interesting and allow you to not sit there and worry about where you're going to go after. I kind of pity the writer that comes after Aaron because you are still going to be dealing with that power creep, but you're going to have seen it in the best possible light.
0: And it's in that regard that I think we get a real sense of the gravity of what's going on here by virtue of giving us the Shi'ar. You know, there is so much brood, there is so much Shi'ar, but then there's also Natasha. And I love Natasha. I have discovered that TK doesn't and I, oh my god but I love Natasha and when she comes into a story it automatically becomes like small potatoes. Like, as soon as you put Natasha into a story you're like oh, this is going to be something you can defeat with a karate chop. (coughs) (laughs) And so like, as soon as you put it in space, you do help reinvigorate the sort of sense of gravity because I want to touch back on something Nathan said earlier. My biggest complaint about this arc is that it feels to me like we got a best parts version when we really needed the full thing. Whereas, for instance, later on, we get the full thing of Enter the Phoenix. And I think that could have done with a best parts version. (laughs) And it's just a really interesting trade-off, especially because all of the stuff I said last episode where I was like, oh my gosh, he's not going to be worthy. How's he going to use the hammer? And then it's like a plot point. I'm just like so into it.
1: I will say I do think that you are selling short how bonkers Enter the Phoenix gets and how much they cut in order to just get us to point C of the conclusion of the arc. In both of these cases, I do think there is a lot of cutting that happens. I think it is in Enter the Phoenix, it's just one beat repeated over and over again. So you kind of don't notice the amount that they're cutting to get through that beat in this every single thing that is happening to every character at any individual moment is completely different from the things that are happening to the other characters and they're happening so quickly and with such big tonal shifts like this them being stranded in space really elicits the same vibe as Tony being stranded in space at the uh, start of Endgame and you really are supposed to be getting this feeling that like it's kind of dire and they're basically close to dead and then just on a dime everything shifts all at once. A ship comes up, turns out, you know, Robbie Reyes was actually doing fine the whole time and is coming back and there's a whole other thing happening there. You got a big change in the, what's going on with Brood Thor, and it just all happens so fast all at once. Which, you know, is is a fun kind of mad caper pace and tone to take things, but it does leave you with a little bit of whiplash.
2: Yeah, it really seems like Jason Aaron was like, I want to see Captain America in a Corsair outfit, Binary, Captain it's in space and brood thor and i'm just gonna figure out a way to make it happen and he didn't really explain how it happened like that that would be a fight i'd want to see like how did thor get infected with a brood like how did he of all people fall to a brood like cool and then you know like the idea that blade tasha and robbie are separated and they are flying through space in his car and i gotta, I gotta it makes me wonder how fast is his car <laughs> like because like does he have warp speed in his car like i, I don't know because otherwise, how would they get through a whole, whole galaxy or, or solar system without Blade instantly dying because of the light from the red sun? And then, why didn't Tasha just put the armor on Blade to see if that could help keep him from dying? You raise some excellent questions,
0: my friend. Which brings us to sort of the plot of this issue. There is some Star Brand stuff going on in space, and everybody's all gay balls about it. So the Shi'ar want to get at it, and the Avengers want to get at it, and by I get at it i sort of mean it's either destroying their people or they're just involved because that's kind of the nature of every marvel story in a lot of ways it's kind of like is that thing killing your people or are you trying to steal the thing either one you're probably in space and that's one of the reasons that when silver surfer shows up to be like hey guys just stay the fuck away don't get involved this is this is not your game this is not your business it really amuses me because when i think about characters that i want to see face off in space. I don't know that Blade, a Ghost Rider, Black Widow, and Silver Surfer come to mind. There is something really... Number one, that first appearance of Silver Surfer is beautiful, dynamic, what a great visual. But then we get like, you know, Galactus's cast-off society <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, this is what we're doing. Which I'm... You know, I love that Thor and Cap are still fighting in the background. There's just so much I love here, but none of this gets a chance to breathe. Like... Like, you gotta let the food rest before you cut into it. And I feel like there's so much delicious meat here, but it's not getting a chance to rest.
1: I agree, but in giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt, the only thing we're really taking out of this is Starbrand. Like, this is meant to reckon with 1 million BC Starbrand and give us whatever the new status quo for Starbrand is going to be going forward in the Avengers, which is, from here on out, plot point of Starbrand once this arc finishes and as we go forward into whatever else is going to be happening into some stuff that we saw in Kieran Gillen's Eternals run, like this is all just stuff that needs to happen to get us the star brand that we're going to have on earth from here on out. And if that really is going to be the only point, and this isn't going to be doing much heavy lifting for the other characters, if you're going to have an arc that doesn't really breathe, that just goes from kind of insane plot beaten character introduction to Insane plot plot beat and character introduction. This was maybe the one to do it. The space stuff is not super consequential to any of these people. The visuals that we get from it are very fun, and it does have a roller coaster ride feel to it. It just never stops moving. It's really high speed, and I am I sort of tend to forgive it just based on the fact that when all is said and done, I didn't really need to take anything away from this arc besides the Starbrand stuff. But I do take away some like fun visual mementos, like. Brood Thor, and you know, for all that I would say, yeah, if you were talking to me about space fights, I would not pick Silver Surfer versus Blade, Natasha Romanoff, and Robbie Reyes. But then we get Robbie Reyes, the Ghost Rider, riding Silver Surfer surfboard, which makes this weird kind of stupid sense, and again gets me into Ghost Rider stuff. So I don't know, like as ill-advised as this all might be to go the way that it does, I. Still find myself enjoying it because the roller coaster ride is
0: just doesn't really stop in a way that is very engaging. Seeing She Hulk fight out in space, seeing the fucking Red Widow. Sorry, what is she? Space God Galacta Widow. She is the War Widow. She looks fabulous. I want to wear that. I am unbelievably excited about so many of these ideas, and then they're just kind of done, and that's so much less exciting than how cool this all reads on paper
2: the parts that i wanted to see more of like we didn't see enough of two we didn't even get a really good intro to the star brand mom like like and that what what was that origin story like she immigrated to cr space like why how Oh my God, that was fascinating. Wow. Okay, so the Shi'ar are just like the US where they like put immigrants into detention. And okay, cool. Like, is this a commentary on the Shi'ar or us? That was cool. But like, also like, wow, that's wow.
0: I think it ties into a lot of the Jason Aaron Roxon stuff from Thor and it just sticks out like a sore thumb in this. It really does read like, oh, did you not know about the Shi'ar interstellar transdimensional person exchange company, job? slavery market no i didn't oh okay well it's vital oh um also vital though fucking boy thing boy thing (laughs) yes i was just about to bring that up it's so good everything to me he looks so fucking cool he does
1: but again another plot element that just comes on really fast and it's not really clear if we're supposed to this is supposed to be like integral like these two are supposed to bond like this and go forth from here on out or was just just a cool thing that happened like Robbie Reyes riding Silver Surfer surfboard and all of this happening while somewhere this issue is leading up to this visual of gladiator menacing a pregnant lady (laughs) and that's how we leave things off if you need to have a child in a story because that's where you feel something needs to go I would never critique that i think as soon as you bring a pregnant woman into the situation you are starting to tread on very thin ice and i don't know that this particular element of the story this mom being pregnant with this child like this mom having the star brand and being pregnant i don't know if this particular plot point didn't kind of fall completely into the frozen water
2: so this whole star brand thing seems like but the mid-80s there were too many series and a tv show me so like this the star brand really seems like the star child who was born in the show because there's so many similarities because like she was the prophesized one she age jumped like five or six times in the course of one season show it's, you know big and it's ridiculous and she had all these really undefined powers but like hey cool she could always save the day so like that seems what like the star brand was like it's just there's so much going on here that it, it's really like i've read it like three times getting ready for this And could probably read it three more times and still not feel I've got a good sense of every single plot beat that happened just because it's so packed.
0: I'm sorry. I need to just interrupt with something. You left out the most important thing about V. And (laughs) that's that V ripped Juliet from Lost when she was the only fucking thing I cared about other than Ben. So I I don't know how I don't.
2: Oh, you're talking about the 2003 reboot, which was amazing
0: as well with Marina Bacharin.
2: Oh, my God. She's so beautiful. Yes. Juliet, like, oh.
0: Yeah, I was not a big lost guy, but I liked Desmond, (laughs) Juliet, and Ben.
2: Those
1: are the correct characters to like.
0: It took a really long time for me to like the show. (sighs) No, V, what a great reference. And what a really astute perspective. They do wind up using the star brand baby as kind of like, this is going to sound so dumb, but the Avengers know something is wrong. They know how fractured it all is, you know, not to sell widow out, but her showing up as the war widow actually doesn't really bode well for the Avengers. It really says something unfortunate about how not arranged they are here. Like they have Black Panther, who already has an intergalactic force. They have She-Hulk, who does a lot of amazing fighting against some really top tier characters, but they still need to keep pulling in help. And but now there's a baby and the baby's going to fix everything the baby's gonna keep them together and as long as they focus on the baby everything will be right is gonna get over that weird case of what the fuck oh my no no one look at Thor right now okay and the good news is Cap is now a jaunty gay pirate who can wield the hammer so we're fine and She-Hulk has the shield okay let's just start calling her Shield Hulk I don't know let's just keep renaming things and we have a baby don't forget this baby is from another universe and it used to be a gay Hulk like there really is a certain sense of this
1: baby will fix everything for our marriage
0: (laughs) that i am so happy about
1: I mean, it just bums me out that they create this absurd character that is this woman from Earth who becomes an intergalactic migrant farmer and is then picked up and put in prison, but is has come into possession. And it's just, it's. I mean, it, essentially it becomes kind of a fridging for this poor woman. And it is about her having to exist in order to pass the star brand power onto this baby. And it's very much like... Well, you know, a woman's highest calling is to be a mother and, you know, get the star brand and then give that to the baby, which I don't know that a woman's highest calling is to become a mother, then get the star brand and give the star brand to a baby. But I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of really high calling for women. And I just it was a weird choice to go this route to give us a child star brand.
2: A lot of the discussion by the characters, especially like Captain America about the star brand while she was trying to give. Birth seemed very, like, a little too, like, and, and this probably fits very low with Cap's character, but it seemed really too, like, conservative, like, pro-life kind of, like, talking points, and I was like... <sighs> I don't know if that's what I really need to see in a comic book about space and, like, all of this wackiness going on. It's a little too much.
0: Okay, you know what? I never would have thought of it that way because when I read this for the episode, it was before the Roe v. Wade decision. But thinking about it after the fact, you know, for me, it's that I very much see that the character is yeah okay you know and part of it is that she doesn't have any agency
1: they might give her a name but it's not I I can't remember it because it's not really that big a deal because it's not about her
0: but I almost wish she had been like a man who somehow got pregnant with the star brand baby oh yes. I would have been so much happier with fridging a man yeah and you know especially because it's like a magical pregnancy and (sighs) Jamie Braddock has proven that you can make those real hot (laughs) and you know watching him reverse vor a planet out of himself Self was romantic. Okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to buy it a bottle of wine and call it baby. God. So I
2: love your, uh, impreg like fascination. It's so amazing, Nico. <laughs>
0: and it's weird because it's like not like it's not normally me, but there's something about the MU where I'm like, too many women have been pregnant. Do some men make
1: mm-hmm. men be pregnant. You could have set that up really well between the like two dude caveman star brands. I, oh yeah. I mean, like, there's some like the idea of like, you know, there's a lineage with the Star brand where when you get it, you get just you just get pregnant no matter what. So if you're a dude, you're just gonna have that baby. I don't know. I but now I'm actually really for that idea. And yeah, like kill a dude, like let a dude birth the Star brand baby and die. That's completely fine. It just with this woman, it just felt like I don't see Aaron being like, oh, this woman's totally disposable. We'll throw it away. I can very much see how he's trying to make this a significant story. It just... I I feel like there are other ways to produce a child in the Marvel Universe such that we don't have to do... Pregnant Lady Gives It All Up for the Bee.
2: That's not her sole purpose in life. This is this character who was created for that. And like, that's not even taking into account, like, all of the Tony Stark of it all in this arc, you know, where they're like, where's Tony Stark? And we're like, oh, haha, ha, he's in the past now. Oh, wow. They're
0: missing the father of invention. <laughs> and instead... They get the mother of the Messiah. So we're just, okay, there is, let's just put it on the table. This book exists in a very clearly kind of locked into Judeo-Christian focus. You kind of can't do a magical star baby coming to save all of us and not acknowledge that. But one of the things that this book immediately pivots to do, oh, fuck. Okay, because- Ghostwriter is stuck in Christianity. Sorry about it, but you know, it's all hell, fire, brimstone, no one should have sex and like, that's the Ghostwriter's thing, right? But then we get Norse mythology in the pages of War of the Realms. There is a complexity to Atlantean society in the depiction of the Avengers of the Deep and after this very Judeo-Christian take on bird people, we are going to pivot to Egyptian gods and we're going to pivot to the phoenix who ultimately becomes a representation of the native american fire bird more than she is the bird people space god phoenix and there is something very important about how this book is seeking to play with the idea of creationism myth origin parentage fatherhood found family redefinition of internal working like when a clock stops working the clock can't look at its own piece and say, it's time to reassemble the costs. It's time to lose the things that don't work and rebuild toward the future. Let's take a look at other kinds of gear work. Let's look at other mechanisms. Let's see how other time works and let's see if we can't process that. The Avengers aren't a clock. The Avengers are an organism. They're an organism made of hundreds of different pieces, heroes, and some of them who became villains again. I'm looking at you, Wonder Man. (laughs) And I can't believe he's getting a D plus show fuck my dick so i'm gonna watch every episode so i'm really so invested in how this book reads as the creation myth of the marvel universe to me at this moment okay
2: i can see that i can see that there's a lot of creation myth type beings especially in the 1 million bc avengers and they were seeing their legacy versions of themselves a lot in the current team so yeah i can see that yeah
1: i mean i think that that was something that we talked about early on on just with with this series coming out when it did on the heels of the wrapping up of the big stories of the MCU, putting in a lot of characters that were familiar and ones that we knew we were going to see coming up, it very much gave a sense of trying to reestablish the myths of the Marvel universe and give stories that would be a baseline for people to come into and have an understanding of how everything works from here on out such that you can kind of feel like you understand not just you know character mythology not just the idea that like ghost rider is fire and brimstone but like very broadly how and why is this all here and i think that is a really tough job to do and i think aaron is really doing a great job on the whole i mean i think he's doing a great job especially with the mythological elements even if like individual arcs that have to get us all of these ideas aren't perfect and feature stuff that maybe we don't like or go at paces or give us tones that we might not think are the best. The undertaking of reworking the creation myth for this Marvel universe is pretty impressive and well done. Did Cap fuse the clothes that Corsair had and his own, or does Corsair have a Captain America esque version of his standard like spandex with a high collar outfit that he normally has with a sash and a headband?
2: Hey, what Corsair and Hepzibah do together? In their private roleplay time, I actually would like to see more of. It, but I, I'm guessing that's what it is. Either that, or Cap somehow perfectly sewed this outfit. That's so crazy i'm gonna
0: matter materializer oh maybe they can just like synthesize costumes because that would be like a a replicator would be something you know a limited replicator for unstable molecule clothing would be really convenient in space where you're constantly like nah
1: space ate my clothes so okay so the no price here is that it is a matter replicator but it only has the silhouette that corsair prefers with the high collar and the sash and the headband but it can do different designs so you can get a Captain America version, but you cannot just get Captain America's costume made in that machine.
2: I don't know. I think it was Carol probably did it. And she's like, I really just want to fuck with Steve and make him like have a Captain Corsair outfit. Like, hell yeah. Because she's probably the only one who knows how to use it.
1: Um, I I like your explanation. So we're
0: barreling toward two arcs that, I mean, after which I think people really kind of laid off of this book. You know, World War She-Hulk, people had a most mostly solid reaction to death eaters. I'm sorry. Death hunters went pretty well, but the two arcs we're about to look at are the age of Kanshu and enter the Phoenix. Now I consider all of us kind of Phoenix experts, uh, but you know, age of Kanshu, Nathan, you've covered like every word of moon Knight that has followed this run. And it's going to be really interesting to get your sort of like reverse picture of how we got here. I've
2: already read ahead and it's, it's a wild ride and... Uh... I I like how it's set up Mark and I'm excited to get into dive into it and talk about it so like hell yeah
0: Now TK do you have any experience with Moon Knight other than also lusting over Oscar Isaac?
1: No I keep telling myself that tomorrow will be the day and that day still has not come really at this point like my biggest meeting with Moon Knight outside of what like any team book that I'm already reading is that Kushala infinite comic that we covered where a past moon night shows up for a few issues
0: okay yeah Ooh. i'll take it
1: yeah that's my big moon night encounter in all my reading really
0: i think for a lot of people before this current run and the age of Conshu, uh it was scrolling past retweets of bill moon knight panels on <laughs> twitter so yeah exactly yeah. your experience is pretty dead on Guys, this book is, week after week, one of the things I look forward to most as we're trying to juggle this with the, I guess, um, we'll call it slow release of judgment that seems to be going on at Marvel. You know, knowing that it's not going to be a book every week. We're going to continue interpolating, catching up on Avengers, which now does have an end date. And we do know that Avengers Avengers Forever and the 1 million BC Avengers will all be working together to defeat the mass of the machinations of Mephisto. But until we return to take a look at the Age of Khonshu and Moon Knight. Guys, it is just such a pleasure coming together to take a look at this Avengers, in part because it's as a book, so less consistent than we are. Our consistency is part of what's helping me really bring this book together.
1: Mm. Yeah, agreed. I think if you look at this as a project, it becomes more fun, honestly. This is an exercise in understanding the core elements of today's Marvel Universe and in getting a baseline for where things are going to go. And that has panned out. You know, this this started in 2018. Here we are in 2022, finally kicking up Judgment Day, which in large part, addresses this initial idea that was introduced that a dying celestial's bodily fluids are the reason for all the stuff that's happening in the Marvel Universe. It took four years but that's panning out and we I think are really going to see a big status quo change and sort of turning of the ship to go in a particular direction from here on out and it all starts with the seeds that are planted in, the, in these arcs so if you really look at it as a project in understanding what the point of planting those seeds was, what direction things were going. It's really fun. And like I said, even the stuff that we're critiquing and saying doesn't work, you know, I might've changed the pace here. I might've not tried to do so much. When you pull back a little further from those granular individual issues in, in an arc, you're still left with something that's very high quality with a lot of solid intention and planning behind it that is paying dividends four or five years later.
2: Yeah, agreed. It really seems like the flagship title of Marvel non x books right now and that's how i've been enjoying it because it's been launching all of these other projects and it's really definitely been shaping the marvel universe in that way
0: Hey everybody, Nico here again. And I'm TK. And we're here to continue our examination of Ghostwriter by Benjamin Percy. Now, of course, I do not mean to short sell any of the brilliant artists that have contributed to this interesting revision of the title. We are, of course, talking about issue number five with Corey Smith on art, Oren Jr. on inks, and Brian Valenza on colors with VCs Travis Lanham providing letters. But part of why I'm like kind of like, oh man, about this is this Ghostwriter volume that we've been kind of unsure of. Uh, It's got its Legacy 248 on the cover and we see in the back of the book there's going to be like some kind of
1: anniversary issue. It's almost like they're making this book for us, TK. I mean, I would say at this point, I feel like they're making it for me. I understand that this is less exciting for you overall, which I find really amusing because you dragged me kicking, and screaming into Ghost Rider readership of any kind whatsoever. But increasingly, I am constantly... constantly amused by how this book really hits some notes for me. It scratches an itch that I want scratched from Marvel Comics, which I never expected I would say. And I agree. I've been kind of critical of this book over the last couple of months. Hey, reasonably, completely reasonably. The things I love about this book are really specific to things that I want, and the criticisms are valid. But like, I even really do like the book.
0: You know what I mean? Like, it's something that is so great about comics. And it's something that I sometimes think about when I, you know, I'm famous for liking a lot and loving a lot. And it's something that if you listen to these segments, you hear me say, oh my God, I love that!" That's one of my favorite characters of all time. I mean, there's stuff that always rises to the top. There's Jean Grey, there's Daredevil, there's stuff that rises. But I have a lot of passion for these comics. And one of the things that I think is important to consider is it's okay to have you know, valid criticism or at least, you know, active, engaged criticism of things you love. And I've genuinely never really loved Johnny Blaze as Ghost Ghostwriter, but I really come to love ben percy's writing and the way his prose and his scope of character influences the way the book reads this book has come to mean something exciting
1: for me this has made me a bigger ben percy fan than his wolverine hat i completely agree with that it really actually was this book and then like some weird list maybe i think on gizmodo it's a list of 13 fungal horror novels that you have to read and i'm a big fan of mushrooms i'm a big fan of mushrooms in fiction, and it turns out that Ben Percy has written some really solid fungal horror fiction that I need to get into. I think it was through realizing that Ben Percy is a very solid and confident horror writer that I came to understand how to really love a lot of his work, even the stuff that I maybe don't want as much, which falls squarely in the Wolverine X-Force zone. And by the way, that is a lot of it, lots that are probably more editorial than Percy they're just things that I don't necessarily want from my ex books but this Ghost Rider book and engaging with Percy as a horror writer and seeing how he loves and understands not just the big horror tropes you know not just scary murderers stuff that we got in the first couple issues that really showed that like yeah he can tackle like a psycho killer or or like clowns in a circus but he can go so much deeper into the stuff that makes horror very interesting and is the stuff I mentioned this last episode that I think you find in a lot of horror podcasts because you can't do the same work as in film or TV in a podcast but they're the types of horror subjects and tropes and motifs that I really love as a mainer and a fan of the King family Stephen King and Joe Hill I really appreciate when horror goes beyond just scary stuff and I'm seeing it here for Percy in a big way even if I really would never have bought that Johnny Blaze would be the character that I would want to follow on this journey.
0: Because one of the things that this run has really brought to my attention is that the bigger picture for, I guess, the state of what's at stake with Ghost Rider as a franchise has very little to do with Johnny Blaze. Johnny Blaze is a thing you can love within Ghost Rider, and he's a manifestation of Ghost Rider, but the Ghost Rider is something so much bigger than Johnny Blaze. I'm a really big Green Lantern fan, and I feel like you can kind of make a case for the ways in which something like the Ghost Rider, which we now have several Spirits of Vengeance and several versions of Ghost Rider, and we see some sort of interesting Ghost Rider and Sorcerer Supreme kind of hybrids with Hushala, and now we have the All Rider and Robbie Reyes, and I'm excited to see the further transformation of the ideas in this book because I am personally very surprised with some of the places that perhaps the creative team has been
1: permitted to go and in the last in the coverage for the last issue i talked about how some of the stylings and stories that this series is starting to cover really remind me of the podcast archive 81 one of the things i really like about that story is in the different seasons they cover different like sub genres of horror the second season is really solidly body horror um The third season gets really into magic in horror. And the reason I keep coming back to it when looking at Ghost Rider is because when you look at a character like Kushala, she is much more obviously entrenched in the magical stuff. But you do get to sort of see magic as horror and how magic can overlap with the horror genre through Kushala. And I think you start to see it a lot in Johnny Blaze's Ghost Rider as well. I guess my point is just that like i said earlier on horror can be so much bigger than just scary stuff jump scares like the grossest thing you can come up with it even goes beyond stuff that we find really fascinating still but has become really solidly part of the genre stuff like body horror and it can get into stuff like fungal fiction it can get into stuff like when magic or ideas about telepathy telepathy and telekinesis when they get so deep into things like human fear when magic starts to get so out of control that these elements that seem just like they might be pure fantasy or even bordering on science fiction, you can make them into horror by just playing with what the function of the plot point gets you to in terms of weird thoughts, weird references, whatever you want to pull up. The beats of other genres can make them horror in a way that is really fun and interesting. And I feel like we're getting some solid versions of that from this ghost ride.
0: It's so important to understand that it really is a bigger picture of horror, right? Because the more you say horror, this book is horror, this book is horror, the more I realize that that's why it maybe doesn't always gel with everything else going on with the Marvel Universe. And there is kind of a silliness to horror. Like there's a a fun silliness. There's a kind of lighthearted magic to when Marvel does dark and scary when it wants it. You know, there's of course severely frightening, but you know, you can see the lighter side of emotional horror in Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, in the expressions of affection between characters. Of course, there's a lot of zombies and creepy and gross and terrifying and Wanda needlessly murdering people. But there's also, you know, there's even humor in some of the fear in this book. And that's something I appreciate, a kind of camp attitude that subverted some of my expectations. And I have a lot of camp that I can't wait to dial into. But there's something that maybe you can help me understand a little bit better, TK, that I I'm kind of struggling on. As much as I really enjoy Agent Warroad and I guess up until now Agent Wilmer, I'm now not really, is, okay, so is he a demon? Is he possessed? I don't know. Uh, right now he just looks kind of like an evil librarian. But beyond that is this sort of parallel, unrelated kind of horror narrative. Like the only thing I'm coming up with is it's like the way Khaleesi is her own thing in so much <laughs> of Game of Thrones. There's just these two fuckers and the demon they've been slowly changing. Is that something I'm not following that's a convention of this more modern, mainer sort of, you know, podcast esque horror? The
1: separation of plot in and of itself is not, no. And I I love the Khaleesi example because this book, not necessarily, but this particular plot of Warroad and her companion uh, will live and die on when and how it meets up with Johnny Blaze. If this is going to be a 12 issue series, which at this point we know it's getting at least eight issues because that was announced at san diego comic con i imagine it will go at least 12 i could see it going more who knows ben percy has a big career ahead of him and i don't know that it's all in comics so but you know if this is a let's say a 12 issue series and they don't meet until issue 10 i think it will be a little bit of a letdown if they are going to meet in the next few issues and sort of play a little cat and mouse through the second half of this series that could be very interesting as to the conventions it's playing on for me what i really got interested in and and was paying attention to and have talked about just before is the magic horror aspect of things. The fact that Warroad is a magic user of some kind, you know if you want to call her a witch, whatever but she's using magic to track Johnny Blaze and to figure out this larger mystery that's going on to deal with this other guy, Zeb, who is himself like maybe kind of a demon sorcerer and it is a vision of magic that delves very well with horror when you think about like calling on dark elder gods on blood sacrifices on you know crows bursting in through the window to deliver messages or attack you. These are all things that are plausible as magic things and can be plausible as horror things too. So I think it has done a good job of expanding the vision of what this book is beyond just dude on a bike with a flaming skull for a head and to give us a little better foothold in to other conventions of the genre and to keep Ghost Rider and especially the Johnny Blaze version of Ghost Rider associated with with more than just Flaming Skullhead on a bike.
0: Now, I hear you say that this is more than just Flaming Skullhead on a bike, but I submit, where all is to be considered equal, the plot of this issue is Flaming Skullhead on a bike, except they leave out the Flaming Skullhead and instead they give us an unbelievable number of side characters, which I'm completely here for I am so fascinated with I can't tell if this is an actual sort of magic road or maybe this is a race like I could believe that this is just an actual race that he's a part of and that all of these people are like in some way vying for this but the unreal cast of characters in this story we have you know kind of obvious horror characters like Dracula and Blade but we also get Rhino, Man-Thing Doctor Doom, Electra's Daredevil, Moon Knight, Craven, Bullseye. There's Tabby, like Meltdown Boom Boom Tabby in this. There's multiple man. And all of this sort of tops off with the fact that this could easily have been a two-part crossover with Wolverine.
1: Yeah, the Wolverine part was where I was like, Ben Percy, I love you. And I am enjoying this book enough that I choose to be charmed. But you need to put the Logan down. Put the Logan down, Ben. This is an intervention step away from the Logan.
0: And it's not even about Logan for me in that regard, because, you know, I do love Logan. It's that I think oftentimes when a character like Logan comes in to help explore a character like Johnny Blaze, where there is a history, but I wouldn't necessarily call the history Starling. It's a complicated situation, you know. This reminds me of all of the Ghost Rider, Punisher, Wolverine, you know, Venom, 90s Marvel Comics Presents, and Heart of Darkness kind of one-shots, and Throwing some of these characters in was charming. I loved seeing Loki Eichel. I loved seeing multiple men, as mentioned. You know, Tabby got a couple of cool panels. There's some Natasha. That's always exciting. Could have stood a black tarantula appearance, if you ask me.
1: <laughs> I couldn't agree more.
0: So, you know, I agree. It's not that Ben Percy shouldn't be writing Logan as much as he does. And if there's a character that he has access to, that it kind of makes sense that he could borrow from himself without in any way, uh, you know, inflicting complications on his own continuity. Yeah, let it be Logan, but X-Force has such a beautiful selection of incredible characters who, you know, I don't know that every one of these characters has a very direct line to Ghost Rider. I know Natasha and Ghost Rider both served on the Champions. I have to assume Kraven and Ghost Rider have fought because Marvel decided that, you know, Craven fights everybody because he's getting a movie. I can't wait till it's Kraven time.
1: when you have become so associated with a character that that character becomes central to my idea of you as a writer that's not a bad thing in and of itself but then when you have a moment like this where you break out and I get really excited about oh man like you're completely off of Krakoa right now we're not doing anything associated with the horrible like violation of statehood that is X-Force or Wolverine's complicity in that or his desire to maybe do better than that his weird monogamous love for Jean Grey that can't be monogamous but it's kind of depicted that way whatever all of that is in the Wolverine on Krakoa stories it's not always what i would choose first but i'm always really impressed with the consistency and the prolific amount of story that is being told in that corner for me as i have gotten so excited about seeing this writer go to something totally different the tone is totally different the genre is totally different the art is different to then have This kind of elevated moment where we really get an idea of how this book fits into the Marvel universe and to have, and and it's doing so in a very nebulous way that's really fun. To have a concrete moment show up and the moment be it's Wolverine and he's kind of saving the day. I poke a little bit of fun at Percy for being way too obsessed with Wolverine and this this didn't help keep that joke lighthearted and made it maybe a little more like, bro, you really... You gotta stop with Wolverine.
0: Because, you know, not to be too anti-Logan, which I am famously not. There's like this period of like 20 episodes where all I did was talk about Wolverine, much to the chagrin of everybody else on the show. People were like, what do you mean there's another life? What the fuck is life of Wolverine? Wait, now you're covering a separate Wolverine story that appeared in a limited edition collectible? Stop it. But when I think about Wolverine and his place in the Marvel Universe, we've talked a lot about how there are a number of characters that functionally serve a similar role to Wolverine in a very engaging way. And, you know, it's characters like Ileana. It's characters like Electra, It's characters who can help carry that banner. Laura, Dokken.
1: In the coverage that's coming up after this, we talk a lot about how it's Laura. Laura really functions as a Wolverine. That's like a functional role now, not just a, a codename.
0: And so knowing that Wolverine is perhaps not being treated as such a main character in the upcoming. Marvel Midnight Suns series, knowing that we've heard from the creator that Ileana will be the de facto leader. You know, combining that with the fact that Kushala is the ghostwriter in that book, even if Robbie Reyes appears in the game. You know, we do have a very busy Marvel Universe at this point, and it can become really tricky to keep track of all of these different elements. So it does feel a little disappointing that we had an opportunity to maybe see a different character, a more minor character. Somebody who could by transformative reality of not being published in 30 books a week, that appearance could become more powerful as a result. You know, We crave these minor appearances and I I know I made a Black Tarantula joke before, but on Mondays we've been covering the MC2 and those of you who heard our earlier Avengers coverage, that means you probably heard our earlier MC2 kickoff episode at the beginning of the summer and we've spent the whole summer taking a look at the MC2 every Monday. I've been so excited about our MC2 coverage, and one of the things I've enjoyed the most is falling in love with the Black Tarantula, a truly underutilized character. Now, the Black Tarantula in the pages of the MC2 is the son of the Black Tarantula that appeared in the pages of Spider-Man and later Daredevil. And, you know, we're, we're winding down our coverage. And much as we do with a lot of the coverage on this show, we're analyzing ways to take a look at how our coverage has impacted the universe. And I said to myself, let me do some research and let me see how many appearances of Black Tarantula I can find that fall outside of the scope of the sort of MC2 period. You know, did MC2 have an impact on how Black Tarantula is handled? And he's had maybe 10 appearances since he left the pages of Andy Diggle's Daredevil with Shadowland. Uh, he's in one issue of Deathlock where Deathlock just kind of like assassinates his whole cartel. And then he's a minor street level support character along the lines of an Elektra or in the pages of... Of a Ed Brisson miniseries that sort of fell oddly in the pandemic called Contagion, which another kind of horror book at Marvel. I know that Ghost Rider and Black Tarantula don't have like some deep magical history, and I'm not even saying Black Tarantula. I'm seeing how many characters got these minor appearances that I was so excited about in this book, and I'm thinking about that it feels perhaps like I would have enjoyed it even more if some of them had starring roles, especially because Ben Percy seems like the kind of guy I want to see helping bring minor characters to the the forefront.
1: You could have even had it been Gabby rather than Logan. Gabby on a fucking bike would have been the funniest thing I can possibly think of. Or oh, yes. do something insane like it's Albert and L C D. It's not Logan. It's somebody who Percy hasn't really put his stamp on in the same way, but because he's putting his stamp all over the Wolverine Mythos, he gets access to all those characters in a way where we're kind of like, well, yeah, I mean you've written this much Logan. Of course I want to know what your Gabby's like. Of course, I want to know what your Dakin's like. Of course, I want to know what your albert and lcd is like i don't know if we're ever going to get a better idea of if this is all of the real versions of these characters that we know that have shown up for this if this is a weird multiversal nebulous space in which these are all kind of like random versions but like this could have been a place where rena our beloved wild thing had shown up if this had been more of a multiversal thing clearly we would have just accepted that and thought it was super cool this could have been where like another version of weird dark devil
0: Ghost Rider 2099 cosmic
1: ghost rider like any of it would be cool so you know that it's logan is totally fine like it doesn't kill anything you can kind of see how it works and there are obvious connections there you know it's just 90s extremeness and the fact that they were both a part of it there's midnight suns there's a lot of reasonable things and the fact that logan is everywhere the idea that if this is actually just the 616 character showing up to a bike race for some reason of course for some reason wolverine is supposed to be there that's fine that's totally acceptable i just think in The grand scheme there were other interesting options and i'm a give percy interesting options guy not a the wolverine is so good i always gotta have it guy And
0: I feel like when I read this originally, I came into this episode being kind of lightheartedly excited to humorously discuss with you how I felt about, oh, it was just bonus Wolverine. I got an extra bit of Logan this month. Ha ha ha. But the more we talked about it, yeah, I think I feel maybe shortchanged from the excitement of getting to read Ben Percy and his unique view of the Marvel Universe on other characters. It's funny because we don't know how much is that You know what I mean? We don't know that somebody didn't say, hey, have you seen Ghostwriter's sales? You might need to, you know, bring that back from the dead, throw in some Wolverine. Maybe Ghostwriter is performing way above expectation. And they said, you get an issue to do whatever you want. There is such a complicated web that makes up the way comics work that oftentimes it, I think, is reflected in our discussion. You know, we're saying we want more minor characters. If I'm willing to entertain the idea that an editor said, no, your big book is Wolverine. Wolverine tossed Logan in. I could also recognize that an editor might have said, oh, you know, Black Tarantula, weird deep cut. You know, you could maybe throw him in the background, but I don't think Black Tarantula is the guy to ride the bike with Ghost Rider. And from there, we get you know a million things. And I know Ghost Rider and Wolverine really do have a long history, but it's that Wolverine has a long history with everybody. (laughs) And I do know that Wolverine is one of the best-selling characters at Marvel, but that then means he's in every high-selling book. And I do know know that Ben Percy is excellent at writing Wolverine, but I also know that Ben Percy is an excellent writer who can give me other characters. So, I'm gonna take a step back, and I'm gonna say complex tapestry, you know, it could be any number of things, but this just didn't serve the story in the way I wanted.
1: It's a thing that I always need to be reminded of, because my instinct towards thinking about what could have been the best story and the most interesting and the thing that I think is coolest often keeps me from first thinking who are the other stakeholders here? Who else is involved in the production of this story? Of course, there is a financial factor at stake. There's an editorial factor at stake. And the idea that it's got to be Wolverine because Wolverine in a title sells books makes so much sense and is a really important factor. I think it's very interesting that the cover does not feature Wolverine and features the people that it does. Could not not agree more. Could not
0: agree more. And that the variant is just Ghost Rider riding a bike like it could be any variant from any era of Ghost Rider blows my mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a thing that we talk about, and again, there's there's science to this that we don't necessarily know, but these decisions are being made. People are thinking about this stuff. It is often odd to me what shows up on a cover, how it shows up and why. What the calculus is I do not know, but the character, it's, it's Natasha, Hawkeye, and Moon Knight. I guess the thing that you can say about them is they're all Phase 4 MCU people, but I don't know that I buy that for issue 5 of a comic book that is Ghost Rider (laughs) that three of the latter phase MCU characters is the thing that is the selling point that's going to tip this book more than somebody like Logan would. So honestly, I just, I really don't know, and I'm not here to make a judgment one way or the other. I think it's a really good point that you make that for all the things that we're saying about how we might want something quote better for Percy, higher quality, more interesting, something that gives him access to other stuff, there is a very real way in which Wolverine might have just been the one that made the most sense and at the end of the day it's not a book ruining problem that it is logan whoever it is the character is essentially a plot point somebody needs to sort of help pull johnny blaze across the proverbial finish line and he needs that help because we're doing some gross body horror stuff there's this weird parasite that's coming out of his kimberly shaw scar in his head and there there's interesting plot stuff that is happening regardless of who the character is that has to help pull Johnny across the finish line. I'm cool focusing on that because it is, this story is gross and weird and fun and it can be Wolverine even if I might have like rather it been Albert and LCD. I know I'm in for the ride
0: and you know, I know you're more in for the ride than I am. I'm the one who's like, I'm Johnny blazing to your back as you Wolverine this motorcycle through (laughs) not hell. With this upcoming special and then the next issue returning back to the numbering, we're greatly approaching Ghost Rider 250 legacy number and legacy numbers usually means something big. When I think about something big for the title, I am going to say, yeah, Blackheart is a pretty big deal returning to the book. You know, not to keep bringing up Daredevil, but, you know, I do also have a Daredevil podcast, What's Up the Billy Club over on YouTube. But, uh, you know, Blackheart appeared as a Daredevil villain in the 80s. We have Elektra in the background here. There's a lot of effort to sort of really cement the street-level dark side of the Marvel Universe. And I have to assume it's in preparation for things like Blade making an appearance in the MCU. And as much as we love performances from the Defenders crew, I don't think Marvel is desperate to keep Daredevil connected to that story. And that could mean really good things for Ghost Rider.
1: I mean, we can go out one ring further in comic stuff too. Blackheart is the son of Mephisto, who we're seeing be really big in the Avengers. His master plan is coming to fruition. Who's been really big on the Avengers? Ghost Rider, Robbie Reyes. There, There's a bunch of interesting directors that this could go in and ties, even if they're just minor ties, even if Blackheart just has a line about like, because of his father sort of shaking things off in one of his plots that got Blackheart to sort of get off the couch and do more stuff. That's the type of thing that another writer can play with later. If we're going to keep having these fantasy horror magic books, which we definitely are because we're getting Midnight Suns, we're getting more Strange Academy, this type of stuff comes up in the pages of Strange, whoever's writing it, whatever's going on. So it excites me that we're seeing this shoring up of another part of the Marvel Universe that is not X-Men, that is not Avengers. Not a lot of anything that we're talking about here is going to be super woven into Judgment Day or Axe stuff. So this is all other big plots and stories that can come up later involving characters that we don't necessarily think about a lot, but there's cool stuff here.
0: Something I really loved was getting the opportunity to listen back and edit your Coverage of X-Men Unlimited, the story recently released featuring Maggot written by Alex Paknadel. Such an exciting story. And, you know, TK, it's been such a pleasure talking Ghost Rider with you, having Avengers upcoming, X-Men Unlimited. And the picture that the Marvel Universe is building really does have room for a lot of these fantastic characters. And this Maggot
1: coverage really fits that tone. He is another one of those characters that I'm excited. He's a lower level character, but seeing his- him pop up and watching him get this story it reminds you that anybody can be that character under a great writer's pen and with the right story on the board
0: and don't forget we bring you coverage of those stories three times a week every week with mc2 mondays modern marvel wednesdays and xi 4 p fridays you guys can find the show over on xs and at xs for podcast on twitter so guys until next time enjoy this last segment keep those mutant lights lit those coen gateways open i've been nico and i've been tk and we'll catch you next time
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X for Podcast. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at
3: XnateXGrayX. Hi, everybody. I'm Jake, they, them. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O H Mega Sentinel.
4: Hola, I'm Arturo. Y ya tú sabes. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram.
3: And what
1: a privilege it is to talk about one of my favorite X Men Unlimited storylines since this book launched. We are talking today about issues. 35 through 40, the storyline Eenie Come Home featuring Maggot, written by Alex Pacnadel, pencils and inks by Julian Shaw, colors by Dono Sanchez-Almara, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. I have just in general really been loving the Unlimited series of stories. For a while now I have been kind of too often repeating the phrase that we need a Cohen Slice of Life book or a Coen Accessory book, and as Unlimited started out, it wasn't really quite that but I did find the stories kind of interesting but especially I feel like in the last 20 or so issues including a bunch of issues that come after this as well it really has been doing the job of giving us some fantastic alternate stories and featuring some characters that we wouldn't have seen otherwise but this one especially both for featuring the character of Maggot but also just for a lot of little details that we'll get into really was probably the peak of my enjoyment of this book so far and I'm wondering first off what you guys have thought about x-men unlimited and particularly about this storyline i fully
4: agree with you like just having a place for these stories i think is so important i've often like mentioned that i think because these are you know less sales driven or revenue driven than the issues that hit print although we've seen some of these already collected which i think speaks to its success but i think that has allowed a space for creators to just be like oh cool i'll tell a reissue story about and they just like grab a couple of the toys you know from the shelf that nobody's using I want to see more of that like color around Krakoa I will say I don't think every story is you know on Unlimited is uh, equally good I think some have you know meandered more than necessary or whatever but I'm glad it's there and you know if you're ever not vibing with it it's pretty easy to just be like okay tune it out and stop reading but the fact that it's there and that they are paying attention to other things that are happening in this era and fitting this into that context. It's just awesome.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've loved this series from the get-go because to me, it felt like it was always aiming to be that book. I mean, I know that it's really crystallized in the last year or so, but I just, you know, I always hoped that in bringing the X-Men Unlimited title back, they would do what the original X-Men Unlimited run was doing, which was telling kind of these B-side stories about some of these quieter characters. X-Men as a corner of the Marvel universe has so many cool characters. Having that many characters gives people so many opportunities to see themselves in these characters as well. So to have them come back, to get some of these deep holes, to get some of these really deeply loved, but like not well celebrated in terms of page time characters like Maggot onto the page for a story that centers him, and centers what's going on with his journey. I mean, it's so satisfying as a reader and as someone who loves this whole world and all of these characters to See these stories coming forward. It really does give a sense of the scale of Krakoa as a nation where people live and things continue to happen even when we have our eyes off it.
1: On top of speaking to characters that are a little bit unloved, what this version of Unlimited has done is also speak to ideas about Krakoa that are difficult to dive into in the main books just because, you know, people have plots they want to tell and it's difficult to deal with like every repercussion of for instance, the resurrection technology. And here we have a really great example. What do you do when your mutant biology includes more than one mind and there's a resurrection in which one of those minds is copied? We've we've talked a lot about what happens if somebody's copied. There have been hints about it since the beginning of Hoxpox, but this was really a chance to do an exploratory story that is not as consequential. I think at some point we will see a big name duplication and deal with that. But the idea of a much smaller name one, but, and also one that is not a full duplication. It's just this weird kind of kink of the process, but one that's worth talking about. These are the kinds of things that exist in the daily lives of Krakoans now, these sorts of problems that come up.
4: And we now know the answer to that moral quandary. Listen to Emma frucking Frost. Period. <laughs> like Emma was right yet again, you know?
3: Because of the framework of this story, it reduces some of the complications the fact that you know, Eni one, who didn't die, turns into a giant kaiju that threatens the island nation is really important. The fact that killing Eni two was clearly a solution to the situation was something that reduced the moral complication of it. But, you know, Japheth's objections are really important. And Emma Frost came really hard. And I, I had some problems with how hard she came. I thought it was a little, a little out of character for, for where she is in her, you know, her growth journey. At the very least, I thought, I didn't think it was likely that she would be the one to get her hands dirty with this
1: well before we delve into that late stage part of the book i want to take us all the way back to the beginning because one of the things on top of the fact that this is a really fantastic story it's beautiful it has you know metaphors as my partner jake pointed out to me earlier towards people who struggle with digestive issues gastrointestinal diseases things like that it also deals with these subtle croco and resurrection questions but it also just has some really fun great detail work and Side adventures for a bunch of characters, including the flagship X Men team, who start off the book on just a standard, you know, rescue and destroy giant thing mission to which Maggot is accompanying them as kind of cleanup duty. And I just love that we started out with this because I think that as interesting as Duggan's run was, we did kind of not get as many adventures of the X Men team working together as I was hoping we would. We got some great side books with those, like Death of Doctor Strange, X Men, and now we have this other really cool example of all of them working together, and Alex Paknadel doing some great writing about how their powers work together, and you know how they close
3: out a fight, which was just such an epic moment. That panel of Jean finishing the fight is really special. The narration too, but if you want an actual closer, there's only one of us who can bring home the win every single time without fail, and of course it's Jean Grey because she's the X Men's. X-Man. And this story does a really great job of like initially centering these characters who are so important. But then, you know, as soon as the fight's over and there's still a huge fucking mess to clean up, they call in their mess cleaner upper.
1: And I love seeing him have the interaction with Laura that indicates they know each other. They're both probably about the same age. Maggot's been around obviously a lot longer, but I think is still skewing a little bit younger. The idea that they both are people that are called in to do dirty jobs and maybe jobs they don't really want to do, but Japheth really feels like, well, you get called in to be an X-Man and do dirty jobs. I'm literally the guy they call in for janitorial superhero duty. I love the interaction between them. I love that this isn't quite a retcon. The idea that these two are friends isn't really a retcon, but it is not something we've really seen on page, and it's something that's really plausible, so just to hit the ground running with this idea that they have a bit of familiarity, and they can sort of hang and have chips together while, you know, she's waiting to heal up and he he's waiting for his part of the journey to come about i really really liked that as again just another detail of krakoan life and superhero mutant life that we probably never thought
4: about but is really plausible they can both bond over some of the rather disturbing body horror aspect (laughs) of their mutant powers yes because, like, you know, and props to the the creative team and the, and the artists for like just leaning into how gross a healing factor can get, you know, and showing us out with like Laura and and Enie biting her finger off. And you know, Maggot's power is, you know, we were talking about this in the green room. Maggot is the only mutant with a grosser power than marrow,
3: but definitely the grossest mutant power. And they are not being shy about that with this, you know. I appreciate how his power leans so hard into the body horror of it all and and honestly I, I didn't think about that connective tissue so to speak between Laura and Japheth because there is this sense that you know I'm the best at what I do well so am I what I do isn't very nice and she's like well neither it isn't for me either I kill people I clean shit up it's like there is this really important parallel that I totally see this friendship forming around
1: I give props to Laura for being chill because he putting her place on a pedestal like yeah it's great to be a part of the X-Men but she really does get stuck with dirty jobs that for her are psychologically dirty that are things that she's really going to struggle with for the rest of her life. She doesn't want to do that stuff just like he doesn't want to clean up waste but that's what their lives their powers their training is suited towards and I think you know they would both rather be doing other stuff but in that moment to me he's being a little bit of a brat I totally get where he's coming from and I also might be that brat, given those circumstances. But gosh, man, what a great era for Laura, because you see these moments with her where she just bites her tongue and is the mature one. And I think like we've seen that throughout Krakoa, but in this little, you know, vertical scrolling arc that so many people aren't going to read, I think we see it over and over again. And it makes me just love this character even more.
3: Well, it chafes a little bit because MAGA is from South Africa. He grew up before apartheid ended, and here he is serving a mutant nation. That views him as you know their greatest natural resource. It's unclear how he's being compensated, and at the very least, he's not being socially compensated for his effort. He's not being celebrated for being the cleaner upper of the Mute nation, and that I totally get why that chafes. Given his upbringing, given everything that he's seen and been through,
4: well, and that to me kind of harkens back to kind of like the the topics of you know inequities on Krakoa that Laval covered, you know, in a rather deftly over in Saber It's not so much about like, did you do something right or wrong? It's, you know, do you know your place? I love that we've gotten to a point with Laura where she's Wolverine as much as Logan is. If a story calls for Wolverine, you could pretty much pick one or the other. They're going to have a different impact, I think, but she's just as usable, just as recognizable. Meanwhile, I am quietly adding skin to the list of really disturbing mutant manifestations.
1: (laughs) And also another 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 mutant who deserves something like an X-Men Unlimited story. I think it's one that I've been waiting for for a while.
3: Well, the brief tease we got of him in Saber was yeah. and the art was perfect. Yeah. Perfection. But that brief tease was just not enough. Just like Javid. Such a compelling story in the interplay of his upbringing, his mutant powers, the body horror of it all, and being, you know, having all of his mutant peers be, like, beautiful by comparison. Like, I want to see more of what's going on in his brain.
4: I want skin and forearm to hang out i just think that would be fun to say
3: He has a
1: great moment in S.W.O.R.D. though, in which he's looking like an absolute fucking snack and looks fantastic in S.W.O.R.D. gear. And I think about that panel a lot. Forearm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, I remember that one. He's a guard.
4: Well, and that was after he cleaned up his act, because the first time we saw him in the Quircone era, he was like drunk outside of the Mutant Liberation Front trailer park.
3: Yep, that's why
1: this book makes me so excited, because it shows no signs of stopping. We have another big arc continuing the X-Men Green storyline, which hasn't always been my favorite but we're getting this new round of characters that are being put on active duty as X-Men that are characters that we wouldn't necessarily see very much, who in this most recent arc we're seeing and they've got new like costumes and it's a, just a really cool moment. A follow-up to the fact that these stories can really be for anybody that the creators want. I want to shout out how many great writers and artists are getting to have their work shown in unlimited stories that are really successful and Alex Packardell is a fantastic example of a writer who i was not crazy familiar with before this and this is a story that has made me really excited to read anything that they write coming up because i just i respect so much how they understand a bunch of different characters voices
4: talk about taking an opportunity and squeezing in as many cameos as you can i saw avalanche i mean he's literally on panel for one image you don't even see his face and i squealed
1: and to that end also he does an incredible splash page of the green lagoon in which we get so many character references and you know most of them are characters that we've seen but like there's a fantastic depiction of dazzler we see glob herman who we haven't seen in a minute way in the background we see lorelei travis from like the 198 prehensile here we see storm in a training outfit like there's just so many great little glimpses at characters that you know much like avalanche sometimes Sometimes all you need is a really brief moment and a location or like they're doing something very specific for the story and it just is a welcome reminder that somebody remembers these characters that there is a place for them on Krakoa you know it also reminds us that like there's a lot of characters so people are going to get left out by necessity but you can sneak them into places where it's appropriate and it just takes one panel to be really special
4: Marrow is in one of the panels in the Green yep. Lagoon just sitting there with bones unnecessarily sticking out of her back is disturbing. God love her
1: no well i thought that was lorelei oh because of the red hair and it looks kind of vaguely but i could also see how you would think it was tommy oh and she does have kind of the mask so you actually might be right but she does not have the proper coloring for tommy she has the coloring of
3: i appreciate this visibly mutated representation because it's such an important part of what being a mutant is it really like speaks back to people who are marginalized for how they appear in, in in the real world you know that kind of representation on the page is important and you know to have have it be so visible and celebrated is important.
1: And I think that's another big part of Maggot's story. Mm -hmm. You know that he is both visibly blue when his powers are active but also that he can't really use his powers without sinking into the reality of the body horror and that everybody around him and you see it in the mission when he's like okay well time for me to go to work and all of the X-Men are kind of visibly grossed out but he's still there. He's still the one that's cleaning up the mess and you know he's the one one that dies for the mission and you know resultantly has this adventure to go on dealing with this double resurrection
4: speaking of cleaning up messes you know by the end of this it feels like maggots left in a good place you know as far as being open for further adventures but that's only if charles xavier doesn't really read the cliff notes about this whole adventure because a whole lot of humans were killed by the giant monster the nuclear waste plant or whatever where it became Pain, like a kaiju, like a couple people died at least. So, I mean, I think it killed those kids. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah so like at what point like where does culpability lie with that like I understand that Eni and Mini are separate entities but it's kind of hard to draw a distinction when it comes to that it's like and you know Charles Xavier's not going to waste that much time <laughs> worrying about you know the blurry lines of morality here. I think he'd be like mm, yeah sorry about that you, you all three of you got to go in the hole
1: well what's a really interesting thing is I mean that's such a good point because other people that we've seen go in the hole for vi- like you could point to Melter, who gets thrown in for not respecting this sacred land, like Eni, also fucks Krakoa up a bunch to the point where 100%. Krakoa physically notices. Yep. And so you would think that that would be like, oh, we got to send you to the pit. But we also know most people's crimes weren't really the thing that they were sent down there for. They were inconvenient to Charles and to his plans to keep Krakoa stable. So he found a reason why they had violated a law and put them in for that. This is the reverse where nobody really knows who matters maggot is so the fact that there was just this giant kaiju like nobody's necessarily going to associate that with the mutants and he can probably get away with not punishing maggot who technically didn't do anything wrong and who has a purpose and who isn't rocking the boat who actually helps to stabilize things so this is a case where you might think to yourself this person maybe should go in the pit of melters in the pit but i imagine he's not going to go there because charles has a lot of use for him
3: also, Charles seems like the type that would just stick Eni in the pit right, and leave yes. Meanie and Maggot out yeah, to their like, No matter how much torture. they suffer
1: as a result That is an interesting companion and counterpoint to Emma who is so fascinating to me in this arc because you can see that willingness to do whatever it takes to protect Krakoa and to right those weird wrongs that come up on the island as a result of their unique way of life and the fact that people can be resurrected, but who has a weird love and compassion for every single mutant that she encounters and as Laura puts it she loves pitilessly.
4: One of my favorite things was that moment where you get like an understanding of Laura's understanding of Emma sometimes yeah it gets ugly and sometimes she's a bitch and sometimes she will murder somebody but it is truly out of love.
3: Well there is a practicality to her actions too. The resurrection system it's not technically murder if they come right back. She is is really leaning into the new reality that Krakoa has established to justify her actions and and, you know from a moral standpoint with those rules in place she's not wrong in terms of mitigating damage and Japheth is kind of stuck in a very human way of thinking about life death you could say there's also something very satisfying about seeing him just not stand for it and like really rebel and not just be like the, the mutant janitor like seeing him step out of line Japheth steps out and he should because this is a really harrowing experience for him too
1: well and he recognizes the mind of Eni too and he's not willing to so quickly write that off because the original hasn't died and i think that's really reasonable i don't know that the book presents us with a ton of other options for how this would work out but you can really respect that he feels the mind of the Eni that is with him while understanding that the other one is still alive and isn't willing just to cede ground to one or the other, but is trying to get to that point where they're all together so they can figure it out,
4: which is kind of a hard sell for me, I guess. Like, you know, this is part of the, you know, the, the side effects of this post-Cracoan era, where you know, resurrection is just it, it kind of like makes death a little less of a big deal. So, I mean, a hundred percent, there's a part of me that was kind of like, bro, just get, I don't know, call Sunfire or somebody over just to like vaporize like all three of you. Really quick let's go take out the kaiju it will resurrect you everybody will be good like that would have been way too cut and dry and and i get that that's a much more boring story than like you know sitting here and like debating like whether you know eeny and Meanie have individual souls and you know what i mean like that's more interesting like that moral quandary but yeah there's a part of me that was kind of like i don't know i mean like if it was his dog like yes i would understand that you
3: too, also like goes like asks laura to stab her like well that's the it's, eventual resolution. But I mean, there's something to the fact that Eni can express will and agency. Yeah. And and does and it's not what Japheth wants. That's like
4: not what anybody wants but it's a hell of a lot more easy to swallow when it is Eni's decision and Eni's sacrifice and not Emma Frost cleaning up the ledger and you know being but pregnant. But I have to
1: say Arturo until you mentioned it I wouldn't have thought about the idea that all three of them just die and honestly like that's not an unreasonable solution if that's how this book have, had ended I don't think that I would have found that For all of them to die and be resurrected whole again, you know, that because of the way they talk about death and resurrection, like, it's still not good. It's not ideal. You don't want to die. It just, like, you can be brought back. But it's repeatedly mentioned that it's not something that you should aspire to, to just, like, do whatever the mission is, carelessly throwing your life in the mix, because you can always be resurrected. I think it could have been an equally difficult but interesting resolution to this plot for the entire, you know, biological system. System that is maggot to have died in order just to reset and start from from one. So I mean, to me, that really speaks to the fact that there are no easy answers on Krakoa, but there are a lot of answers. And depending on who the writer is, and how they choose to address things, I think there can be a lot of interesting ways to solve plot related issues that come up in stories like these that really reveal something about not just the central character in maggot, but in people like Emma Frost and people like Laura in the side Side characters that come to be a part of the adventure and show their own character traits and what they wrestle with you know Laura does the dirty job that she doesn't ever want to do but she it, it has to be the one to do and she takes on that really sad fact of losing a friend because she did the thing that was required
3: of her I think at the end of the day in reading this I feel I feel like she did her duty to Krokoa she did her duty to Eni she did her she did what she had to do in order to save the most amount of life and I think that that's, those are the kinds of stakes. I mean, th- there's that great talk that she and Emma have at the end of the run, you know, where Emma says, this is what's, you know, this caring is what separates you from people like Creed. You do it because you have to, not because you want to. And I think that's that's the, a really important distinction for Laura as a character. And, you know,
1: Jake, you and I have talked a little bit about the metaphor that this has to having a pet and, mm-hmm. you know, losing a pet. And I think the other part of what Laura does is really see... I mean, in this case, Eni and Meanie have kind of minds, so there's a little bit, but you know, I think pets up, whatever. But she's giving Eni a death with dignity in, in a way that you, because you can see like physically, Eni is suffering too. This, the fact that there are two of them is physically taxing on Eni. She's malnourished and she is kind of suffering, and all said and done, she needs compassion, and Laura is the one that provides it. To the conversation that she has with Emma at the beginning when she is coming to back Maggot up and the conversation that they have at the end. The only thing I can really think about is just Laura's time as a member of X-Force, which is something that past a certain point was acknowledged and sanctioned by Emma. Not originally, but as time went on. And she very much saw Laura as kind of a Logan-esque tool. And you know, this also goes back to Arturo, what you were saying about how the two Wolverines can both kind of do the job. It's very interesting to see Laura get... Get to be the x-man and Wolverine having to do the wet work on x-force because he's done both jobs but it's really actually nice to see Laura not being on x-force and not being the one that has to do the wet work for beast because even in this story we see a moment of her having to do kind of a junior version of that because she's not going around like methodically slaughtering all their enemies she's just trying to figure out how to deal with this one situation and give compassion to a creature that is dying but it really made me think about the long background that all these characters have together and with each other and how you really can just pull one or two little threads for a story like this. And it references so much. It digs so much into rich character history. This is a story that, you know, plausibly if I ever wanted to write an X-Men story about how Laura feels about being the best she is at what she does, this is one that I would reference because this is a really subtle version of that experience of being one with death and being somebody who plies death as a trait.
4: And I love that she's getting her shine a little bit and she's enjoying it. She's enjoying her hero era. Like at one point, she refers to herself as the only card-carrying member of the X-Men. And I just was like, yes, girl, talk your shit. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> you see as she's coming into adulthood, as she's coming into her identity as Wolverine, she's still Wolverine. She's her own Wolverine. It's a character that I want to get to know more and more.
4: She was introduced as a traumatized character. Trauma is her entire origin story for several years of publication but she has grown so much as a character that it's nice to see other writers running with that new beat and not regressing to you know a switchblade with uh, with foot claws
1: Logan has worked really hard to see her have better for herself and it's funny because he has not worked really hard to see Dakin have better for himself and it's interesting because they all are Wolverines Gabby also is a Wolverine there is a core Wolverine to all of the Wolverine family, but how their differences manifest is very interesting. Based on kind of the influence that Logan has had on their lives, it almost doesn't matter whether it's a lot or a little. They're all going to be different, and that's going to be really important. In the case of Laura, I think I think it felt like really cool to make her the really edgy, murdery one through that X Force run, and then we all realize that it's kind of gross and it went a little far, and it might be nice just to see a character that was not entirely trauma all the time especially a young female character and people like Marjorie Liu got their hands on her and we found that it was actually a lot more interesting to see her written as somebody who maybe has a Wolverine legacy sure but can experience more things besides regret over her trigger scent or the need to be the one sent on the mission to kill and again I point to this story where yes she is technically killing but this is not a FBI cia style we're gonna send you in to quietly perform a coup you're putting a creature down that needs compassion and that wants to die with dignity which is a really different story and a beautiful one for laura but i still know in my heart that when
4: she needs to get nasty she will get nasty oh for sure like, for sure she's wolverine you know, right of yeah.
3: course she will yeah yeah well it's like you have gradations of that where you know Laura is a step away from Wolverine and Gabby is like two steps away from that you know we see the Summers family we see Emma interacting with the Cuckoos like I wish there were more of that I want to see more of the Wolverine family as it grows uh, because I'm only recently invested in seeing them like be a family unit because Krakoa has has gotten me interested in that but like now I want to see that work happening they
4: absolutely need a Howlet habitat 100% and it should look like a giant like scratch post you know like the ones that have like the multi-levels for the cats it's almost like a little condo
1: I also just I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to point out that I really love the artwork done by Julian Shaw here the character types that he pulls out that have a really cartoony vibe to them that is sometimes almost a little caricature-esque but gives everybody a really expressive face and you know, when it comes to moments like all of the X-Men reacting to the fact that Japheth is going to go eat all this nuclear waste, you know, you see that they all have this grossed out look on their faces. I think it just works really well. There are some fantastic scenes of Emma reacting in anger at Japheth in kind of being disturbed, being in the mind of Eni There's just so much expression happening in this book, and I really, the art really sells this story to me. Question, is Magneto really part of his
3: origin yeah. story? Yeah, 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 yeah. that was why I went and looked that up because X-Men 76 gives Maggot's origin story. It's an extended version of this one that we see here. I love
4: that. I wasn't sure if that was like a deep hole or a little bit of a retcon.
3: Yeah, X-Men 76. It's very good.
1: Yeah, there's no good explanation given for why Magneto should be the one to know this kid is a mutant, to know that he's here, to know how to heal him in some capacity, and then to know how to pull these things out. But that is, in fact, the origin story established over 20 years ago. So,
4: hell, I think Maggot would be a great fit on Orocco. Oh, absolutely. Assuming mm. that it is not been <laughs> atomized.
1: I think Orocco, as potentially a place for visible mutants, is a very interesting idea. I don't want to delve into it too much here because we're just talking about this story. But yeah, Araco could be a really fantastic place for Maggot.
4: I want to see more visible mutation visibly. Like I want to see like Maggot would be a sick for for the x-men team like these are not characters that i, I think would be long on you know any like expected a-list roster but it would be cool to have that visibility but i think there is something practical to say about like okay but you're still on earth and people surprise, still suck so maybe if you were like on the cool red planet hanging out with people that literally don't give a fuck what you look like you would have better quality of life i don't know it's a it's an interesting thing to, to think about i do love one of you know the, the closing images we get you know, once we have the resolution when maggot is just jacked and he looks like a, a blue incredible hulk i love that i love that the writer said you know what not only am i making one of the maggots a kaiju but maggot himself is going to be being digested inside of it by it's enzyme." like yeah, yeah like just just so wrong and so so gross Well, and
1: the fact that matt becomes a kaiju when they transfer the power like that in and of itself could be a really interesting thing if tempo were around and they had an unlimited source of wolverine husks with tempo around can they really quickly get eeny and Meanie fed and then get that transferred over to jayfeth so he can become a kaiju like that's an interesting way to apply a mutant circuit and to do something cool that makes him super powerful
4: and speaking of unlimited food i hope the food at the green lagoon is better than it looks looks because it looks like any day that ends in Y the special is gruel.
1: I mean I like to uh, remind myself how anytime you talk to anybody who does animation or cartooning or art of any kind they will talk about how food is one of the most difficult things to draw it always seems to be like a a coconut shell full of stew and (laughs) I yeah I'm just like I'm letting that one go because I imagine they don't want to draw like an entire plate of like ribs and fries why trying to depict each of these characters faces as expressively as they do
4: employ a few more plants that grow bagels we could we could definitely see a few more of those around
1: true we could use the bagel planter tree yeah